Trail and Ultra Runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. As always, I'm your humble host, Coach Jason Coop. And on this episode of the podcast, we have another repeat offender, and that is Jackson Brill. And we are going to talk about the exact same thing that we talked about during the first time I brought Jackson on the podcast, and that is when to run and when to walk and what catalyzes that transition. And most importantly, for all the athletes and all the coaches that are out there listening, why it is important to train for both of these modalities very specifically, and are they in fact different skills? Jackson recently presented his master's thesis to his graduate advisors at the University of Colorado Boulder, as well as he gave that that same presentation to our entire coaching department. And so I thought it was a good opportunity for us, the listeners, to take some information from Jackson's research and from his presentations and see how we can practically apply it to athletes as they are training for ultra marathon events. Jackson is a heck of an athlete in his own right. He's going to take the world by storm one day. I have no doubt about it. He is also wickedly smart and he just happens to have this fascination between running and walking and steep mountainous events in order to maximize his own performance so you guys watch out for jackson in the future so there we go i'm going to get right out of the way here's my conversation with jackson brill before we get too much into it let's kind of set the table right because i want i want everybody to understand how like how your master's defense kind of came about because there's it's a little bit of a odd origin story with uh with you kind of reanalyzing data that you already had so why don't we just go through that first because i think it's just a cool it's a cool pivot to to set the table on this Sure. Um, so I uh, originally started working in this lab uh, as an undergraduate. So this is the locomotion lab at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Uh, so I did my undergraduate um, degree program in uh, integrative physiology, you know, worked in this lab, um, you know, my last two years uh, there and um, re- did a undergraduate thesis. Um, that was kind of the original intent of collecting this data. So um that undergraduate thesis was looking at preferred transition between walking and running on uphills and looking at a few different metrics to see if they could predict um, or, tr- or I think a better way to say it would be trigger the preferred transition. Um, and then the goal was, you know, so so then I ended up doing um, what was a one year addition to that program to get my MS. So um, CU has a cool program where um, if you're a good enough student, you can kind of do a do a one year add on um, and pick up another degree. So I kind of got grandfathered into that program. And uh, prior to uh, this little uh, sickness that's, that took over the world called coronavirus, the goal was to do a uh, entirely new project. So def- um, create an entirely new um, study, you know, recollect data, um, you know, re- and, and, and do the whole thing from scratch. Uh, but um, due to a lot of circumstances, um, one being COVID, uh, we ended up just, I ended up just finding myself in a position where the easiest and best thing to do was to um, use the data I had already looked at and um, ask a couple more questions with regards to it. So um, 
I'm going to quickly talk about what the study that I wanted to do was because it's really cool. We're going to have um, people um, do time trials up Green Mountain in Boulder. So that's the mountain with all the flat irons on it. And they were going to do three different time trials. One time trial, they're going to run the whole way. Another time trial, they were going to walk the whole way. And another time trial, they could um, use whichever gate, you know, they preferred, go back and forth um, and whatnot. Uh, and then we were going to, um, you know, have GPS data um, and have speed and kind of looking at, uh, you know, the, the incline and, and how that changed, looking at the speed and how that changed. Uh, we thought we were going to get some cool um, findings with regards to, you know, preferred transition and, and alternating gates, but actually in the field. So looking at, you know, how might rocks and roots and, you know, just being on the side of a mountain instead of on a treadmill um, change some of these things. So uh, it's still a good idea for a study. Um, so uh, if anybody out there wants to, wants to do that, uh, talk to me. I'm happy to, uh, happy to give some advice and, um, yeah, kind of, kind of walk through, through that maybe in a little more detail. But, um, yeah, ran into some roadblocks with that. Uh, it, it snowed a lot earlier in the year than we anticipated. Um, this would be fall 2020. And then um, grad school is a lot of work, uh, even outside of the research. So just was kind of finding myself uh, a little stressed for time. So at the end of the day, um, made the decision to yeah, just look at that um, previous data that I collected as an undergrad. I hope somebody does pick up that research because I was quite intrigued by it because anytime you do something in the field like that, it's, it, it makes it all the more kind of like real and, 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 and as well as practical. Um, so let, let's, let's dive into, let's, let's dive into the paper. First off, I, I, I assume that at some point down the road, we're going to see this pop up in an academic journal, right? You guys going to submit it? That would be the goal. Yeah. Um, our, because our sample size was pretty low, particularly um, for kind of the questions we ended up asking for these master's projects, right? The original goal of the study um, was to ask entirely different questions. We had some reasonably large p-values, you know, not a ton under 0.05. So we might run into roadblocks with reviewers who are still, uh, you know, aggressively tied to that <laughs> idea of p-values um, and needing needing super low ones to, to, to mean something. So we'll, we'll do our best. Um, there's kind of two different parts to the master's thesis is um, I'm assuming we'll kind of get into. So we're probably going to kind of split those up and try to um, publish each of them uh, as, as separate articles. Okay. So for the listeners, what I'll do is inst I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but it's not going to obviously go to an academic journal. It'll go to something on, you know, my Google drive or something like that, where they can download it. And you can, if you need to redact anything, you can redact anything from it to I'll just, I'll send you stay the, compliance or whatever. I'll send you the URL for the like submitted version oh, to perfect. see you. Um, yep. Yeah, that probably works perfect. better. It's funny because when I emailed you, I was like, this is actually the final version. And then like 20 minutes later, I got an email from the grad school saying, oh, table three was a quarter inch over the margin on page 37. Oh, my God. Like, oh my God. So I had to go back in, do that. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that'll also be the true official version, not the 99.8% uh, finished version that you saw. Okay, perfect. All right. That's the end of the housekeeping. Let's dig into this. Right off of the bat, you made this statement in the slide deck that I'm actually looking at right now. Humans prefer to walk at slow speeds and to run at fast speeds, which is so brilliant and simplistic to start out with. And what you're essentially exploring is, is what triggers 
the walk to run and run to walk and what is slow, I guess, and what is fast, right? If they prefer to run at fast speeds and prefer to walk at slow speeds, how can we essentially categorize them and figure out what is the trigger from one to one? So to start out with, what were essentially the, the like the questions that you were trying to answer when you were when you were digging into this problem? Right. So because we collected um, data for the, the preferred transition speed, so that that speed that, you know, at slower than that humans would choose to walk at faster than humans would cho- choose to run at. Um, we also we so because we kind of collected that speed for each subject, collected it on a variety of inclines, we um, had the, you know, some cardiometabolic data um, and variables that we um, collected for similar speeds. And what that allowed us to do, you know, once we analyzed it is um, give us some evidence for do some of these cardiorespiratory, cardiometabolic um, parameters, do they serve as the trigger for preferred transition? Because like you said, we're trying to ask, why do we switch um, at the speed that we do? So the two um, kind of variables in question that we looked at for my um, graduate work were minute ventilation or breathing rate. So the um, units for that would be liters per minute or just the total volume of air um, that you're breathing in, you know, over per time. And the other um, variable that we were looking at uh, was the carbohydrate oxidation rate. So uh, I think it's it's easier to think of that if we first think of there's an overall um, energetic rate, there's an overall cost of, you know, performing exercise, performing movement. And then within that, uh, you know, at least for um, the exercise intensities we were looking at, that's made up of the amount of that energy that's provided from carbohydrates and the amount that's provided from fat. So kind of within that overall energetic cost, we were then looking at um, the rate of carbohydrate oxidation, the percentage of that energetic cost being provided from carbs, and um, wanted to see if that could serve as a trigger as well. Okay, so you're exploring this this notion of when what what is the trigger from running to walking and back sorry yeah walking to running and then back <laughs> from running to walking i think it's so simple but i can't even get it straight and you're using the the bioenergetics to or you're exploring the bioenergetics and seeing if there is some relationship between a certain point of that bioenergetic spectrum and this and this transition describe first so everybody can kind of have this picture in their mind what the research design was like like how many subjects did you have what did they actually go through and then we'll then use that to describe all of these other different kind of inflection points that may or may not dictate this run to walk and walk to run transition right so the um i guess yeah first just get into the subjects they were all 10 male high caliber male trail and mountain runners because we were looking at um, inclines as steep as 15 degrees um, that just required a really high level of um of exercise ability so that's kind of why we limited it to just that pointy end of the fitness spectrum um as well as you know limiting it to, to just males um, we didn't think we'd have enough um, we didn't think we'd be able to recruit enough women to make it, um, you know, to kind of get enough data on on, on that front. And uh, yeah, so for these subjects, we first termed the preferred transition speed. And the way we did that is basically had subjects start in a treadmill at a very slow speed 
So they were undoubtedly going to um, want to walk at that speed. And then we raised the speed of the treadmill slowly but surely until eventually the treadmill was going fast enough that then subjects were running. And we recorded that speed at which um, that switch occurred. And then, we, and then we did the opposite. So started the treadmill fast, lowered the speed of the treadmill until eventually subjects were walking, recorded that speed. And then the average of those two, the run to walk, the walk to run, that defined their preferred transition speed. And then um, following that, we had uh, subjects perform um, longer trials. So five minute trials for both walking and running. So five minute trial running, rest, five minute trial walking at three different speeds. So, um, be, and the way we determined what those three speeds were was um, we knew that would be about their preferred transition speed. So we wanted to get basically an intersection between the running and walking values for whatever variable we were looking at. So let's just say we were looking at the breathing rate at that slowest of the three speeds. We would we wanted to see running having that a greater breathing rate than walking. And at the fast of the three speeds, we wanted to see walking have the greater breathing rate. So there'd be an intersection um, if we think about drawing a trend line for the three running data points, the three walking data points, and that intersection could define you know the speed at which optimized breathing rate, or in the case of the carbohydrate oxidation, the speed that minimized the amount of carbohydrate being used. And then we compared those kind of two calculated transition speeds from the cardiorespiratory data to that preferred transition speed that we calculated earlier. And we collected this data for four different inclines. So those four inclines we looked at were 0, 5, 10, and 15 degrees. And um, I'll, I'll give those in feet per mile as well, because maybe, especially with this American audience, maybe that's the way people best conceptualize that. Personally, that's that's how I conceptualize it, probably just because a straw that tells you how many feet, you know, each mile climbs. So, um, so yeah, zero, zero degrees. Um, can you guess how many feet per mile that would be, Coop? I know you're not a huge math guy, but. Uh, maybe zero, zero, zero yeah. feet per mile. Okay, there we go. Nice, right. nice work. Nice work. Right, um, I'll, and I'll do the rest of them. So five degrees Thank was... <laughs> Five degrees was 460 feet per mile. 10 degrees was 917 feet per mile. 15 degrees was 1,367 feet per mile. So roughly, Which again, roughly. Steep, steep. Yeah, steep, super steep. Yeah, most people be walking, you know, that 15 degree slope anytime, you know, they, yeah. they see a number like that pop up on Strava. So roughly, you know, it's a little bit less. For every five degrees, it seems about a 500 feet. Um, you know, rise per mile, approximately. Yeah, I mean, so when I looked at that, and I'm sure you, I'm sure you picked those, you picked those slopes deliberately. You've obviously got flat level terrain. You've got a, just a, what what people would look at as a normal hill, right? I mean, it's just a normal normal climb. Most people would run it. Front of the Packers would run it. Back of the Packers would run it. Things like that. You've got one that's kind of an in betweeny, right? Like maybe the front of the pack people are going to run it and the back of the pack people are going to walk it. And then you've got one grade that everybody's going to walk. Even the really good people are probably going to walk it, especially in the, maybe not in the context of like a vertical K or something like that, but at least in the context of an ultra marathon, almost everybody's going to walk the last one. Right. Yeah. I mean that, that five degree slope being 460 feet per mile, I'd say there's a lot of, you know, mid and back the packers that would probably walk that in like hundred milers, let's say, but um, yeah, yeah. at the very least, you know, doing running intervals, you know, 
pretty much everyone's going to be be running that, you know, five degree incline. But yeah, like you said, um, you know, I'm, I'm reasonably fast. Most most 10 degree inclines, especially in shorter ultras, I'm going to be running. Um, and then, yeah, like you said, 15 degrees, uh, nearly exclusively walking outside of, uh, you know, Killian and a VK. <laughs> there you go. Always have to always got to bring up Killian. He's retired now. So maybe it's say he's actually a little bit slower. But anyway, OK, what? So we've got this research design. What did you think was going to happen? What were the hypotheses that you were trying to either con- either either confirm or or uh, or not get a confirmation on? Right. So uh, we were um, fortunate, I guess, in the sense of um, you know determined hypotheses that we had already um, you know kind of looked at some similar stuff for the undergrad research. So because it was the same data set, I went off of those findings um, with looking at the gate transition and kind of expecting what I would see. So I thought that the, um, you know, that, that breathing rate, ventilation rate, and the carbohydrate oxidation rate, I thought those, those would not be triggers for the preferred transition speed. So again, if we think back to that intersection of those three speeds for walking and running, I thought that the that intersection speed for the two variables would um, occur at, would, would be different speed than the preferred transition speed. And the main reason why I assumed that would happen was because for the undergrad paper, that um, calculated transition speed that we looked at was the energetically optimal transition speed. So just looking at overall metabolic cost, could that serve as a trigger? Which if you were going to hypothesize that any you know cardiorespiratory value would be, you would think it would be energetic cost. That would be the... Um, that's kind of the big one. So because that undergraduate finding was that um, at, at least across the range of all three, all four inclines, that energetic cost didn't, wasn't a trigger for preferred transition speed. I assumed that the, the ventilation rate and the carbohydrate oxidation rate results would mirror that. There's a little wrinkle there when it comes to 15 degrees, but um, we'll get into that later. Yeah, we'll get into that, but let's like boil that down to from a practical perspective, right? So, what's your the hypothesis that you thought was going to the 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 hypothesis that you thought was going to unfold essentially says that the bioenergetics don't matter in terms of when humans transition from walking to running and then back. I wouldn't go so far as to say don't matter, but at the very least don't serve as the primary um, reason for transitioning gates at the speed that you do. Don't, um, you know, you couldn't use that as the only metric you're looking at to predict preferred transition or, um, you know, it, it doesn't seem that that's like the, the number one end all be all reason why we're switching gates. Um, but yeah, yeah I, would, I wouldn't go so, I guess, so far to say as they don't matter. Well, okay. I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that humans, when they're out there in the field, they typically will notice a certain speed and a certain grade at which for which it's easier to walk versus run. And everybody's had that experience. They're running up a climb and they look to their right and there's somebody walking and they look to their left and there's somebody running and everybody's going the same speed. And then you say, Oh shit, well, I should I should be walking because it's easier, right? That's whatever that's kind of what everybody thinks. But the the hypothesis that that you think that you thought was going to unfold was essentially that and, and i guess that easier part of it would indicate that there's something metabolically that's triggering 
the run or the walk to run transition to the run back to it's easier, right? You're saying, oh, it's easier. So I'm going to do the easier modality, right? But yeah. what you're essentially I mean, saying is, is that probably is not the trigger. Yeah, I, I, I don't. Yeah, bioenergetics appear not to be the trigger. Um, or that's what we hypothesized. You know, we'll, we'll get into results later. Um, that bioenergetics across the range of inclines aren't serving as the trigger for preferred transition. I'll push back on the the easier, you know, because to me, that's getting more to preferred transition speed. You know, the reason why you're preferring it's because it's easier or, you know, the reason why you're preferring one gate over the other is easier. But um, for whatever reason, um, or maybe I shouldn't say that, I, I, but um, it doesn't appear that bioenergetics are mirroring the perceived exertion like you would tend to expect. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And what I'm trying to set up for the listeners is, is it's, it's a little, it, it appears to be a little bit more complicated than it, than at least it does to the, like the lay person's eye when they're looking at that. Yeah. You want to do the easier modality. There's something from the bioenergetics at play, but we could get into the actual findings right now. It turns out that not that it's not going to match that all the time. Right. So at um, just kind of like we hypothesized across the four inclines, um, the breathing rate and the carbohydrate oxidation rate didn't appear to trigger the um, preferred transition speed. However, at 15 degrees, all three of those, uh, you know, transition speeds, you know, if we think about optimizing breathing rate, optimizing carbohydrate oxidation rate and the preferred, all three of those uh, occurred very close to the same value, but only at 15 degrees. Okay. So let's kind of get into the results, right? So why don't you walk, kind of walk, you're going to have to do a lot. I, f- I feel bad for you right now that I'm thinking about it because you're going to have to verbalize a lot of figures and tables and things like that, which is always very difficult, very difficult in a podcast format, but I can look at those and go, okay, I understand the results, but let's try to verbalize what c- kind of what, what the results were and then what the actual meaning to the athletes are. Sure. So I'm going to, um, just cause it kind of pertains to, you know, the results we just talked about, I'm going to start more complicated and we're going to go more simple. So, um, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe that's not the, the right order to go in general, but, but we're going to try it out. <laughs> so if we think about, um, and I guess I'll just quickly step back to the undergrad findings. So, um, just like the, the master's findings that the breathing rate, carbohydrate oxidation rate, um, transition speeds only, were the same as the preferred transition speed at 15 degrees. That was the same for the overall energetic cost um, transition speed. And that was the undergraduate finding. So it was all the same data set, but what appears to be happening is that, um, you know, at zero, five and 10 degrees at these uh, less steep inclines, bioenergetics aren't serving as the trigger for preferred transition. There's some other variable that's likely more biomechanical or neuromuscular in nature that's triggering the preferred transition speed. So if we look at just the research for flat zero degrees, um, there's some good evidence that the um, what's triggering the preferred transition on flat terrain is uh, just one single small muscle, the um, tibialis anterior muscle at the front of the shin. So this isn't a muscle that's taking up a ton of oxygen. It's not gonna have a very large influence on energetic cost, which is why likely you see a large difference between the energetically optimal and the preferred transition speed on flat terrain. But um, there's, there's been, I'd say, five or six papers that have found that that tibialis anterior muscle getting 
fatigued or getting tired at these faster walking speeds, that's what's triggering the switch to running. So um, likely, um, at least in my view, a similar, um, something similar is happening at five and 10 degrees where, you know, again, there's not a, t- a ton of research at these moderate inclines, but likely there's something more um, neuromuscular, biomechanical at play that's serving as the primary trigger versus energetics. Now, if we think about the 15 degree finding, which that's kind of uh, different than these than these uh, more moderate or uh, more gradual inclines, all of those uh, cardiometabolic, cardiorespiratory values, uh, there there is evidence that they um, are serving as more of a primary trigger for preferred transition speed because all of those calculated optimal transition speeds for energetic cost, for um, breathing rate, for carbohydrate oxidation rate, because those are all occurring at the same speed as the preferred transition speed, that's some evidence that um, those um, energetic values could be triggering preferred transition speed. So um, again, there's this is one finding, you know, there hasn't been another um, paper looking at preferred transition on such such steep inclines. So um, I'm kind of pumping the brakes before, you know, running too far, you know, alert, alert the medias with this amazing finding. But um, <laughs> In theory, what's going on uh, at 15 degrees, uh, if these results, you know, were replicated um, in, in other studies, um, perhaps what's happening is that um, as you increase the incline, um, the, ener- the overall energetic cost increase. So humans don't need to work very hard uh, on flat terrain, you know, to work at their preferred transition speed. But humans have to work really freaking hard at 15 degrees to um, you know, be at their preferred transition speed, which is why you see most people walking at such a steep incline because they can't maintain a speed um, where it would make sense to run. They're, they're far below their preferred transition speed. So, um, so because subjects, because people are working at a very high exercise intensity, a very high level of you know, cardiometabolic stress at that super steep incline, um, perhaps then because those bioenergetic variables are close to maximal um perhaps that's that 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 would be a a plausible theory as to why those cardiorespiratory variables are playing more of a role in gait transition you know and if um we boil it down simply we could just say oxygen's at a premium because at that 15 degree slope you're kind of running out of oxygen to maintain that exercise intensity all of a sudden it makes a heck of a lot more sense to optimize, you know, just for the sake of simplicity, you know, oxygen at zero degrees, you know, you can, everyone can pretty much breathe through their nose at um, the preferred transition speed. Oxygen's nowhere near a premium. That right there, Jackson, I think summarizes it very well because I kind of look at it through the lens of we've all, we always like use this phrase. This just came to mind. This just came to mind. We always use this phrase, like humans are smart. You know, we always kind of like figure out the path of least resistance and things like that. But here's an example. We're talking specifically about the preferred transition, transition speed. And I, I'm emphasizing preferred intentionally. Here's an example where the cost of transport, I'm using my correct biomechanics terms here. The cost of transport is actually higher when you go to that transition than it is the other way around. So if you go from walking to running, initially at that transition speed, it's going to cost you more oxygen to go a mile 
than it would be if you just walked. And going back to my previous example of everybody's been in the same situation where they're, you know, running up a climb, they look to the left and somebody's walking and they're looking to the right and there's, there's somebody running that person to the, that person to the right is preferring a form of locomotion that is more oxygen intensive. It's more expensive. And it, it's, it's always been fascinating to me because this is one of those areas where economy, although it might be a small range of speed where economy isn't the biggest driving factor, it might, it might be, and it looks like it's likely some sort of biomechanical factor. Like you, like you mentioned earlier. Yeah. It's zero, five and 10 degrees. Um, yeah, got that right. Um, I guess, I guess one thing I'll say, you know, just cause it's the second time you've brought it up with regard, Oh, I look to my left, look to my right, you know, I'm running there walking. Um, and, and again, this research, uh, actually, I'll take that back. Um, there's research on both up and flat train for this. Um, leg length actually um, predicts individual differences in preferred transition speed mm. um, quite well. So the longer your legs are, um, the more likely it is that you will feel comfortable walking at faster speeds um, versus, you know, the, sm- the shorter your legs are, you know, you might want to switch to running at a, um, a slower speed. So just cause, so, you know, so th- this is for all the people out there who um, get worried because the person next to them is doing a different gait and then they, and then they switch. Um, you know, it's, I would, I would advise that person to trust their gut, um, particularly if that person next to them is, is way taller or way shorter than them. <laughs> so you should be looking to your right at somebody at the same height. <laughs> this is the takeaway. Exactly. Yeah. That would, that would be better. That would be better at least than, uh, um, yeah, than if they were a different height. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where sure we've collected this data for the speed that, you know, people prefer to do it at, you know, and then the speed that optimizes, you know, some of these bioenergetic values. But at the end of the day, we don't have performance data. Um, so, uh, and you know, is it, be- is it better to switch at the preferred transition speed if your goal is to get up that hill quicker, or is it better to switch at the speed that optimizes economy, you know, optimizes energetic cost and, um, it's, it's interesting because Dr. Krom and I, my advisor, have had discussions and my intuition is that humans, especially, you know, pretty good athletes are pretty good at doing what's going to, you know, just naturally do what, um, you know, gets them to the finish line first. So my kind of opinion is that preferred to, the preferred transition speed would optimize performance while, you know, Roger, Dr. Krom thinks that if subjects switched at the energetically optimal transition speed, so kind of changing what they naturally did to minimize their economy, his view is that that would be the correct speed to switch out to optimize performance. So um, that's probably another mm. research study to do, um, you know, to, to, to see, uh, yeah, to, to, to kind of put a performance realm into this research. Um, but yeah, uh, at, at this point, we don't have any um, performance-oriented data for, you know, what's the correct speed to switch at. Here, here's what, I mean, you and I have talked about this a little bit. I actually think it's different depending upon the event duration or depending upon the task duration. So if you have a task duration, like you get, you're going to have people go up green, right? So for a task duration like that, yeah, economy is super important, right? Because you're pinning yourself the entire climb. You're doing a climb that's, you know, if everybody's out there, you, you want to do like an hour time trial or a 30 minute time trial or something like that. Running economy and locomotion economy becomes very important. And so, yeah. Oxygen's at a premium. 
oxygen oxygen is at a premium. And so the energetically preferred transition speed as a strategy to run and walk is probably the better one. But then when oxygen is not at a premium, let's just say hard rock. I got into hard rock today, right? This is at the top of my mind, just like two hours ago, literally before we started recording this. Love skull. It's congrats. Yeah. Even, even though, yeah, even though you're at 11 and 14,000 feet the entire time, it seems like oxygen would be at a premium, but you're going so slow, right? That's not the limiting factor for performance. There's likely more of a musculoskeletal limiting factor for performance. And then therefore switching, my opinion is, I've talked to Roger about this too, switching gates more frequently during those long duration tasks in order to, you're essentially like spreading the neuromuscular fatigue around, you know, because you're using everything in a slightly different pattern. That I think is the winning strategy in those situations. And so I'm presenting them as like the polar opposites because there's this like really messy metal that everybody has to deal with. But if you're do, but for shorter task durations, I, I think energetic, the energetically, um, optimal transition speed is the better strategy, but in the longer ones, you got to kind of like turn that on its head and just switch things around so that the, so that the biomechanics and the local, the localized muscular fatigue is different. Yeah. I don't think that's a bad coaching strategy. Um, kind of like you mentioned, we're totally within the realm of theory right now because we don't have any of that performance data. So, um, you know, that's, that's why, that's why researchers exist to, you know, provide data for, um, stuff that coaches already know, or at the very least already think they know. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, again, if we take this to the practical realm, um, I, I think there's a lot of plausibility to what you just said. And, um, yeah, particularly if we think about hundred milers and stuff where, um, you know, the, the speed is so low, there might even be an argument to, um, and again, I'm, I'm, cur- I'm well within the realm of theory right now, not uh, data. Um, I love but, how you have to couch um, that so often. <laughs> well, I, I want to, cause everyone, you know, in the, in these day and age, alternative facts, blah, blah, blah. I'm, I'm purely speculating right now. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but like, you know, in hard rock, there might even be an argument to, um, to only run on the downhills or flat terrain. Um, because, you know, it's, it's unlikely, you know, I'm excluding like some technicality or oh, I'm trying to eat or whatever, you know, you, you can run the downhills, you can run the flats, but you know, maybe you'll lose a little bit of time on a couple uphills by not, um, you know, by, by walking the whole thing, let's say, and not even trying to run some of the more gradual trains, but because you're running all those other sections, kind of like you said, spreading that fatigue around, um, and, you know, just kind of mixing it up all and, and kind of providing more alteration, um, might be more of the winning strategy because yeah, at the end of these super long races, it oftentimes seems that some local muscular factor is um, the limiting factor for for going faster. So um, yeah, I, I think uh, I think yeah, basically I think uh, there's a, there's a lot of uh, um, there's a, what you just said uh, might might be might be great. Might, might be, might be. We'll hold out for it. We'll see. Maybe 10 years from now when somebody does that research. Yeah. 10, 10 or five or 10 years from now when somebody does that research, I'm either going to have to eat crow or I can say I called it. Okay. So what else, what else can athletes like practically take away from this, from, from this type of research, Jackson? Like, okay, we know that we, we know that these things are not the triggers for the preferred transition speed. How does that practically like play out though? Right. So um, I would say at this point, 
just try to minimize perceived exertion when you're, um, you know, climbing up the hill, um, you know, with, with regards to gait transition. Again, there might be research in the future that says, oh, no, because we know this triggers it, let's try to optimize that instead. Um, but again, that's, that's more speculation. So I'd say kind of the big takeaways with regards to the gait transition research. Um, so th this is the part where everyone should kind of tune back in, you know, bringing you back to planet Earth. Um, the, the first kind of big picture finding is that we know we, we know well at this point that gait transition speeds slow down with incline. So, um, you know, whether, whether we're looking at preferred transition or, you know, more of these bioenergetic variables, in all cases, you know, very obviously that transition speed slows down with incline. So, for example, if we're talking about preferred transition speed um, or energetically optimal transition speed on flat terrain, um, that occurs, you know, at about a 12 or a 13 minute mile. But if we look at 15 degrees, that speeds more of an 18 and a half minute mile. So, you know, and then and then for five and 10 degrees, it would be somewhere in there. So I think it's more on flat train that transitions, you know, preferred transition speed occurs at about five miles per hour. Yet as we get up towards 15 degrees, it's closer to three miles per hour. So what that means is that, you know, it's not good to kind of anchor in your mind as to, you know, what it, it wouldn't be smart to say at this speed is when I switch gates at this incline is when I switch gates because it's a function of both, you know? So if let's say, Oh, it's 14 minutes a mile for me, that might work great on one incline, but it shouldn't be the same on a different incline. Or again, let's say, Oh, at 8% grade, that's when I switch again, it's, it's going to, um, you know, depend on your speed. So um, just record, just kind of adding more nuance to it, recognize that kind of in your mind thinking, Oh, I'm going to switch at a certain speed or I'm going to switch at a certain incline is not the right way to go about it. So my advice is what not to do. Again, we, we, we don't have enough to tell you what to do. <laughs> well, a lot of, I mean, a lot of ultra marathon running is, is I always say it's success by lack of failure, right? So if you're like constantly identifying all these multiple different kind of failure points, and one of them would be, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to walk whenever the speed gets whatever. I don't think that that's a bad, I don't think that that's a bad framework in a lot of, uh, in, in, a, in a lot of cases. Let me ask you this. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. So everybody has, yeah, get ready, get ready. Put your, put your brain cap on. Everybody uses GPS, right? Pretty much everybody will use GPS watch. Your GPS watch knows or has the capability of knowing almost instantaneously the grade you're on and the speed that you're running. You can also tell your GPS watch something about you bioenergetically. You can tell it your VO2 max, you can tell it your threshold, your speed at threshold, and all those other things. How difficult would it be to program an alarm through Garmin IQ, right? Normal people can kind of do this now. Through Garmin IQ, where based on a certain set of conditions for each individual, for Jackson Brill, for Jason Coop, for, you know, one of my athletes or something like that, because they're all, they all have different uh, threshold speeds, right? For each person, you're going on this grade at this speed, I'm going to give you an alarm to tell you when your economically preferred transition speed is. It would be really freaking hard. And uh, I guess the simple reason <laughs> is why is because... 
that was the goal of, you know, the original goal of the masters of research, you know, by, by having people do these time trials of green mountain. So the fact that I uh, failed miserably in, uh, in writing that paper and collecting that data and, you know, maybe more importantly, writing, you know, super complex Python code to do that for me, uh, shows, uh, you know, provides evidence that uh, it would be really hard to, to, at this point, you know, engineer your watch to, uh, um, you know, kind of tell you when to switch for you. Somebody's going to do that, though, before the research, I guarantee you, like, there, there's going to be, a, you know, one of the, the more outdoors kind of oriented uh, watches, whether it's like the Phoenix six, when it comes out or Coros's kind of trail version or whatever, I, I, I could see that coming down the pipeline. And I don't know what they're going to base it on, but it's kind of good to hear you say that, yeah, we need to like pump the brakes on this a little bit because we really, we really can't put all those variables together in a formula, so to speak, and have it be all that applicable. Yeah, it'll be like a whoop strap where, you know, it's, it's telling us to do stuff, but it's not really uh, basing it off of anything uh, valuable. Calling this is going to be like the fifth right podcast. Now, Man, it is. Oh, God. I recorded yesterday. This is neither here nor there. I recorded yesterday with Corinne and, uh, and Marco Altini from uh, HRV uh, for Athletes. And we talked a lot about the whoop strap. So, the listener, this that podcast will come out the week before this one, I think. So listeners can go check that one out and, and then you yeah. will get the reference. <laughs> yeah, and I'll, uh, you know, you're, you're very good about not letting yourself become biased with sponsors and stuff. But if uh, these companies come out and pay me, you know, a, a, I'd say my price would be $5 million. I'll, uh, I'll endorse them in full, but uh, we have a really high price. My, my, I will sell out, but it'll be a very high number. Okay, fair enough. Okay, so what what else are some practical take homes from from this research? We've kind of pointed out like what not to do. Let's not pigeonhole ourselves into a particular speed and or a combination of speed and grade to determine this run to walk transition and walk to run transition. We need to trust our gut, right? And 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 try to minimize uh, RPE to help drive that decision back and forth. Maybe there's a consideration in longer races where you're intentionally switching up the modes between running and walking more than you would normally do so in order to kind of minimize the localized fatigue. What else can you kind of draw from, from, from the research that athletes can kind of take home and either work on in training or apply to a race? Yeah, I guess the first thing I'll say is, you know, if we think about that trust in your gut minimizing RPE, that, that that's more my theory, you know, that's that's that would be my advice in, in like a coaching context. I don't think because we don't have that evidence that says performance is optimized by the preferred transition speed, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable saying that as a researcher. Although, again, that, that might be my coaching advice. Um, but yeah, I guess um, I think we've kind of covered a lot of the, the, the take homes, at least in my view, you know, you, you might have, have one or two more things, I guess, um, thinking again about the difference between the energetically optimal and preferred transition speed. And again, those other, uh, bioenergetic variables kind of fall within close, close values to the energetically optimal transition. Um, because, because those bioenergetic transition speeds occur at zero through 10 degrees, faster uh, at a faster speed than the preferred transition speed you could make an argument for um at the very least um practicing and training switching at a speed slightly 
quicker, you know, at maybe 10% quicker than you naturally would. And, um, you know, that if you kind of got more comfortable doing that, that would kind of bring that difference between the preferred and the bioenergetic um, optimization closer together. Um, so there, there's perhaps an argument for doing that. Um, but I'd say, you know, the biggest thing to do in training is just get comfortable switching gates. You know, if you, if kind of, if, uh, kind of like you say, as a coach, you know, if you can do something in training, it's a lot easier to replicate it in the race. So if you feel comfortable, you know, even if it's not based on any large scientific principle, if you feel comfortable switching back and forth on a climb between running and walking and training, and you feel comfortable doing it, um, you know, at, at the speed that you kind of find yourself doing it at, it's going to be a lot easier in a race to be confident and, you know, not feel the need to turn to the person next to you and see which gate they're doing. Well, and you, you started to bring this up and I want to peel, peel, peel it apart just a little bit more. There is this concept that running and walking are skills, right? And we see this play out in the, in the context of, uh, in the context of the competitive arena where, Races that have a lot of hiking have kind of like di almost different, not different winners, but you see people perform differently, I guess, as opposed to races that have a lot of like flat level train, right? You've got the athletes that are good on mountainous train. You've got the athletes that are really good on, on, on flat train. You had this brilliant, uh, slide, uh, in, in, in one of the parts of your presentation, where it's a picture of Elliot Kip Kipchoge and a not equal sign in the picture of Killian Jornet. They're both fantastic athletes and they might be very similar from a cardiovascular standpoint, right? You put them on a treadmill they, if, and you blind at the speed, but they might be very similar in terms of their cardiac output and their VO2 max and things like that. But then you put them on the marathon race course and they're way different. You put them on a mountainous race course and they would be way different. So why don't you talk about that aspect a little bit, the skill aspect that kind of that, that, that really gets uncovered when we're testing people on flat level terrain and on inclines. Sure. And yeah, no, the, uh, I didn't want to interrupt you, but, uh, when you started out saying, oh, the, the people who do well in these steep mountainous races where there's walking are, you know, different than when there's these more flatter or buffed out terrain. Um, I'm like, yeah, that's the reason why I'm sponsored, you know, be because there's not, they're not all just these flat <laughs> level races. Cause I, man, I would be in trouble if, uh, if, if everything was, you know, beautiful, buffed out, smooth, not too steep terrain. So Thank goodness, uh, I would say that um, that the winners of these steeper races are different. Um, but yeah, this, um, you know, that was a brilliant segue kind of into the second part of uh, my, my research, um, which was looking um, not at gate transition specifically, but looking at locomotor economy. So looking at running economy and looking at walking economy and using um, economy as a proxy or a measurement that in part um, kind of is looking at um, this idea that these different modalities are different skills. So obviously from a performance perspective, you know, it's, it's easier, it's maybe easier to recognize the different skills, kind of like we just said, you know, Killian, Killian is a, you know, a, a great steep runner, but he's, you know, not going to win the Olympic 5k anytime soon. Likewise, Kipchoge hasn't, um, you know, uh, hasn't won UTMB and, and, and likely will never in his life. Um, 
Notice how I say likely, you know, because I'll put put nothing past him, right? Alan Kipchoge, nothing (laughs) is impossible. Um, uh, But but at the very least, yeah, the the skills are very different. And, you know, a lot of, and maybe maybe to to bring it a little closer to home, um, I mean, you see really good NCA cross-country and track athletes jump into the trail world and um, they don't have immediate success and some of them never have success. So um, for sure, I'd say it's pretty well established on the performance side of things that um that that the ability to succeed in in these flatter races doesn't always correspond to the ability to succeed in, in these more mountainous races so um yeah uh we we measured locomotor economy you know for walking and so walking economy and running economy um and kind of use that to kind of unpiece this question and then look at this idea of skill a little bit you know, and I've always, the, the way that I've always explained that is, is in the, in the running world, and this has been particularly accentuated in the last few years with the shoe revolution and all the carbon fiber plates that are getting put in the road shoes, is that running economy is kind of the, the king and queen maker, you know, in the, in the road running world. You have athletes that are very, very similar from a VO2 max perspective, their running economy essentially separates them from a from a performance perspective. You don't see that correlation as strong in trail running. Meaning, if you lined up the top ten people at UTMB and you gave them all that um, uh, you gave them all a stress test and determined what their threshold was and what their running economy at threshold is and things like that, those num- that the bubble of those numbers would be fairly large as compared to if you look at the top 10 for an international road racer or, or something like that. So the, it goes back to there's a skill component that is at play that absolutely has a, a big thing to do with performance. Yeah, and you might want to link link to a former uh, podcast guest, uh, Guy Guillemin's uh, paper that um, I think it's titled something like, um, you know, how running economy isn't as big of a player in the you know in the ultra world, uh, you know, as compared to the road running world. Um, yeah, you know, there's there's a um, a lot a lot of variables at play, you know, in these mountain races that. Um, kind of make any one variable in this case yeah. locomotor economy um not kind of the the kingpin and and even if we make it a little more complex you know it's at the very least in the road running world you know it seems like it's all about three variables at least vo2 max lactate threshold and running economy from those three um variables um you know and we can look at uh joiners michael joiners paper on this um we, we, we can pretty well predict, um, you know, performance from those three variables. And it's all about optimizing those three variables. Here's the take home lesson though, from that, right. It's this one thing to say, okay, running, walking or skill and running economy might not be as important in trail running as, as is in road running from a coach. Here's the actionable piece that all the listeners can kind of take home. You, you, if you're training for a road marathon, you will absolutely want to introduce training interventions to help improve running economy specifically. Think of strength training. Think of doing like bounding drills and things like that. Those interventions are very specifically aimed at improving running economy, just like the super shoes, right? Same proposition. You get a carbon fiber plate in your shoes, you're going to improve your running economy, your performance will therefore improve. There's not as compelling of an argument to do those specific running economy types of interventions in trail running 
because improving running economy is not as linked, there's the caveat, is not as linked to performance from a trail perspective, particularly when I would say the trail trail that the athlete is competing on is is very technical. So the way that I've always approached it as a coach is I'm just going to get the running economy gains through training, right? Just normal run training, normal doing intervals, we're kind of do and then leave all of the other specialty interventions. I don't I don't ever look at those as a, a thing to go to kind of chase around from a from a from a trail running perspective. I would rather get the 95% improvement in running economy just through the normal normal training process and not chase around the other stuff. Yeah, and, and I'm I'm answering this question. I'm responding now as as an athlete, you know, not as a as a researcher, but um, I, I I feel similarly. You know, I um, some of it's that I don't like to you know do heavy strength training or bound and drills and stuff like that. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I, I don't even think it's probably that helpful in the context of of race performance. You know, considering the events that um, you know the, the mountain races, these you know ultras that um, are kind of my specialty. Um, and if anything, you know the closest I'm kind of coming to specifically doing workouts to improve my running economy are more just pretty high intense, um, yeah. running workouts. So VO2 yeah. max, you know, you're, you're just from VO2 max workouts, or let's even say you're hopping on the track and doing like hard 200s and 400s, you know, that's, you know, maybe even faster than VO2 max, even from just, just these really high intensity running workouts, you're likely as a trail runner going to get a slight boost in running economy just because of those high force outputs and kind of the response then that, you know, maybe has on your tendons and stuff, you know, for us, for us, slow pokes, just running through the woods that might, you know, just by doing VO2 max intervals, that might even be enough to give you a um, significant boost in running economy without even having to mess around with any, you know, fancy uh, um, gym exercises or whatnot. Well, I, I was at the I was at the running event uh, this past weekend. It's big trade, big huge running trade show in in Austin, Texas, that happens every year. For the listeners that that aren't aware of it, so all the all the shoe companies go there, all the specialty retailers, all the device manufacturers, and things like that. And you're, so you're starting to see, you know, one one of the big themes this year was the carbon fiber plates. Everybody's kind of got them. There's even companies that uh, will put them in insoles. And uh, there are even companies that are now targeting the shoe manufacturers with, hey, we've got the best carbon, right? Just like they do in the kind of in the cycling world. And it's starting to pop pop up in the trail running space as well. And you know how the shoe manufacturers work. They've got a platform and they just kind of plug and play that platform and make slight, you know, design modifications. And, And I look at that and go, if you're putting a carbon fiber plate in there to improve running economy and it doesn't matter in this sport, like, I don't understand. I don't understand. I kind of don't understand the purpose. And I asked a couple reps about that and they were just totally freaking clueless. I think <laughs> if you want to have a carbon tricky. fiber plate in there for another reason. Great. But don't do it for the running economy reason, I guess is what I was saying. I mean, I think if we're thinking about other reasons, a carbon fiber plates more likely to have a detriment, you know, cause, uh, like, yeah, I mean, I would be absolutely terrified if I took my uh, Alpha Flies, you know, my Nike, you know, Alpha Flies out on the trail. You know, I'd probably break my ankle with, you know, the first time I had to make a like 30 degree turn in the trail. So, um, yeah, I'd be I'd be more wor- I'd be more worried. Um, uh, I'd be more worried than excited about a carbon fiber plate in a trail shoe personally. But um, I'm not sponsored by North Face, so it, it's OK for me to say that. <laughs> It's poor North Face shoes. Like I said, if you put a if you put a carbon fiber plate in a trail shoe for another reason, 
besides running an economy, great. If it's, if it's fit for purpose, great. But if you're telling me that you're putting this in there for running economy gain on the trail, I'm just going to look at you. I'm going to look at you sideways. So don't start doing that shoe manufacturers. Um, okay. So we, we've got, we've kind of got to the part where we're, we're looking at these different performance outcomes as not being driven by running economy in this or not predominantly being uh, driven by running economy and the take-home message just to encapsulate that for the athletes is from a training perspective it's probably unwise to go around and chase that specific gain because it's not material to the outcome take the gains from the normal training process and have that be it and this is a i just thought of this this is an area jackson where like the research and the things that you're uncovering it has impact far outside of what you're intentionally studying right because i can look at this as a coach and i'm like okay that tells me what not to do and that actually is just as good of a directional arrow in a lot of cases as what to do, because I know a lot of the right things to do. And if you're saying, okay, don't go chase, don't go down this path. Don't go chase this direction from some, you know, like casually related research. That's great for me as a coach. Yeah. And I, I guess, don't know if you ever yeah, intended that, it that way though. Yeah. I mean, we, uh, I mean, ultimately, you know, I'm, I am an athlete and, um, you know, have a bit of a, have some coaching experience and whatnot. So I think when it comes to questions that I'm interested in looking at, certainly, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this within the context of, of exercise performance. So, um, maybe it wasn't intentional, but at the very least, uh, uh, likely, you know, doing research that's applicable to coaches and athletes is subconsciously something that I'm, uh, you know, probably, probably gearing things towards, but, um, yeah, I mean, now that we've, uh, kind of bad mouthed economy or at the very least said what it's, um, kind of, kind of what it's not, you know, maybe, uh, well, what maybe we shouldn't do with respect to locomotor economy. Um, the reason why we collected this data and analyzed this data was more for using it as a measurement of skill. And there is going to be some limitations of that, um, because, you know, economy doesn't completely equal skill. You know, if we think about skill being performance, we just talked about how particularly in ultras, economy isn't the, the number one driver of performance. That being said, though, if be, we collected running economy data for all our subjects for running, all our subjects for walking at 0, 5, 10, and 15 degrees, and I'd say because we had enough data um, and could run enough comparisons, I think there are some useful findings with respect to, um, you know, seeing how comparing running economy on flat to running economy on uphill train, comparing walking economy on flat to walking economy on uphill train, comparing running economy on flat versus walking economy on flat or comparing running economy on uphill versus walking economy on uphill. I think I got all, all four kind of big comparisons. And um, I, th I think the usefulness there is, it tells us, so So we looked at correlations and we looked to see how well locomotor economy and kind of these four different, um, these four different modes, you know, flat running and walking versus steep running and walking, how well they translated from one mode to the other. Because if we found a strong correlation, that would make an argument that they're similar skills. And if we found a weak or um, no correlation, that would provide evidence that um, they aren't, um, that, they, that they're different skills. And from that, you know, getting back to the, the coaches and athletes, 
um, yeah, if, if something's different skill, if, if, if we find based off the, if we find two modes didn't correlate strongly, thus meaning that that's evidence that they're different skills, then you likely should train both skills and you couldn't utilize training to train both skills at the same time. Um, you know, if your races had had both of those, had two different modes of it that didn't correlate. Yeah. So you're screwed if you're not, you're not screwed, but you're not going to perform as well at hard rock. If you spend all your time running up and down hills, you'll do okay, exactly. but you'll do a lot better if you spend some of your time walking uphill. Right. So yeah, I'll, I'll get into the results, which, which support what you just said. So, um, so like I said, there are kind of these four different comparisons, you know, we can think about running on flat or gradual to, to running on steep, you know, and then walking on steep versus, you know, walking on flat and gradual and then kind of mix and match do all of these comparisons. So what we found was that, at, uh, or I guess I said that slightly differently. I'll just jump into our findings. Um, we found yeah, that, um, yeah, at, um, for running economy, we found that at the small incline differences, so at five degree incline differences, so zero versus five degrees, five versus 10 degrees, 10 versus 15 degrees, we found quite strong correlations. So in effect that um, when we compared running at two different inclines, when that incline difference was only five degrees, small incline difference, that they were similar skills. Same findings for walking economy. For walking economy for zero versus five, five versus 10, 10 versus 15, also correlated strongly. So the small incline difference, strong correlation within the same gate, so in effect, similar skills within the same gate uh, at the small incline differences. Now we also looked at the incline. We also looked at the economy comparisons at the larger incline differences. So think zero versus ten degrees, five versus fifteen degrees, and zero versus fifteen degrees. And then we find that um, those strong correlations, um, or then we find that the correlations get worse. So um, at those 10 and 15 degree incline differences for both, you know, comparing running economy to itself and comparing walking economy itself, we found that those correlations weren't that good. So in one or two instances, maybe they were moderate. In a couple instances, they were, you know, it was absolutely no, um, you know, no, ob no obvious correlation. Um, so, yeah, it, it appears that um, once you get to, um, you know, a 10 degree incline difference, that all of a sudden, even within the same gate, those are different skills. So, you know, it makes sense that Killian and Kipchoge are uh, are different athletes with with a different skill set. Could you? Uh, I'm going to ask that question later because that's going to really put you on the spot. Let's cut. Let's let's once again let's take that and move it to practically what athletes should do. So, what I hear from that as a coach is that the specificity matters, right? If if they are truly different skills and they're truly different skills across the different grades, and they're only they're only correlated within a small with within very small differences. If you have an athlete that is competing with a it, in a race that has all of these varieties of, of grades, they're best served to do that in training as well. Exactly. Yeah. So it sounds so super simple, but this research actually says, yeah, you should actually be doing that. Right. Principle, principle of specificity. So um, if we think about kind of the research that's been done prior to this, that's been pretty well established for running economy. It's well known that at the smaller incline of, or I'd say there's good evidence at this point that, and even prior to my research, that at the smaller incline differences, 
run the economy correlated strongly, but at the larger inclined differences, those correlations diminished. Um, so basically, my research filled in the gaps a little bit for walking economy, finding that those the walking economy correlations parallel the running economy um, findings. Um, but yeah, again, getting back to practical stuff, train with specificity with regard to steepness of incline. Yeah. But then also just think about it if you're reconning a course, right? If you're reconning a course, you should be running and walking when you think you're going to be running and walking during the race. And we see this at the Western States camp. We see people who do soft rock, you know, and they try to run everything. That's probably not the best way to get the most physiological adaptation and skill acquisition to since we're focusing on that word out of that recon because you're going to use a different skill during the race because the race duration is going to dictate that you can't run everything right and uh you know i'm kind of outing myself right now as a frequent podcast listener of yours but um yeah it's 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 one of those things where in training it's really easy to run uh, a crap a shit ton more than um you're going to in a, in a hundred mile race you know come mile 30, 40, 50, whatever. But um, yeah, I, I would say that um, my findings um, support this idea that particularly when you're doing these longer ultras where you are going to be walking a lot more, slow down and practice walking um, because, you know, that walking, those walking economy uh, correlations are going to, are, are because walking economy, well, I guess I didn't mention this earlier, but um, my findings for comparing running and walking economy at the same incline so comparing running and walking economy at zero, comparing the running and walking economy at five, comparing the two at 10, comparing them at 15, also didn't find strong correlations. They were more moderate. So they were, so comparing running and walking economy at the same incline um, had worse correlations than within the same gate at the small incline differences, but generally better correlations within the same um, yeah. gate at the larger incline differences. So Comparing the two gates of the same incline, moderate, you know, moderate um, correlations, but those, that's not a strong correlation. So I would say, yeah, you know, it's one of those things in training where um, force yourself to walk um, more in training or at least, uh, you know, if, if you're going to be walking more in the race, because based off of these economy findings, running and walking are different skills with um, economy not translating um, particularly well from one to the other. Yeah. Here, here's how I do it for athletes. And this, this research, I, 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 I'm not going to say I developed this because it's somebody's probably done it way before I did. But when I have an athlete, I try, when I have an athlete that's, that's training for a mountainous event, I know they're going to, going to be hiking a lot. I try to forecast what percentage of time during the race. And this is really important. It's a percentage of time, not percentage of miles but what percentage of time they are going to be walking during the race. And if you look, if you know the, the, the capability of the athlete, the fitness of the athlete, and you can look at the race profile, you can get that close. You're not going to like freaking dial it in, but you can get it close. If you have GPS data and you have cadence data from your watch, you can, you can, and they've done the race before you can get that super, super precise, or you can look at somebody else's data that has done it before and you can get that and you can peel apart the cadence data that way you can get it super precise, but you can get it close. And then what I try to have the athlete do in training is match that run and walk percentage. That's the first thing. And I almost always find that the percentage of walking or, or power hiking, what are we calling it now? 
to make it not sound like everybody's going slow power hiking right that's the that's the i don't mind word. i don't mind sounding slow i'm just going to keep using walking okay we're going to use walking the amount of time that they need to that they need to bump up is double usually it's and sometimes it's triple you know they're spending 10% of their time uh, walking during training and they need to spend 30% of it during training because that's what they're going to do in the race. I mean, it really is a, it's a really is a one to three or sometimes even four X. And sometimes that's hard to do because they don't have the train. But I guess my point is, is the, one of the ways that I unfold that skill component as a coach is making sure that the just simple percentage of walking is roughly matched in training as compared to what the race forecast is. And the second one, and this goes back to the gr- the specificity of the grade, is if you have a perfect situation, you try to get them on the grades that they're going to that they're going to experience during the race, which is usually kind of all over the map. But to si- but to simplify it, I just say, listen, if the race has 400 feet of elevation change per mile, that's what we're going to target in training. And then that way there's enough, it kind of forces the variety, I guess is what I'm saying. You try to get enough variety in there to induce the biomechanical adaptations. What we're not doing, and we always kind of have to go back to what we're not doing as well, or this is what I, what I, what I don't do is say, I want to see X vertical feet this week. Or why, and I get this question on Instagram a lot. How many vertical feet do I need or whatever? I've never related it like that. I've always looked at it as what is the rate of change compared to the rate of change during the race because you want the biomechanical, you want the biomechanical specificity. And, and I guess in that case, there's what I'm trying to say is there's no overload that's specifically associated with a number of vertical feet, like we think of a mileage overload or a volume overload. I need 10 hours per week to get an adaptation or whatever. Like that doesn't exist, or I don't think it exists in the vertical world because it's all related to the biomechanical specificity in terms of feet change per mile. That That's the way I've done it as a coach. I don't know if you think about it any differently as an athlete though. Yeah, no, it's uh, what I'm hearing you say is, you know, earlier I mentioned with the gate transition stuff, you know, so I guess throwing it back to a few minutes ago, like, oh, you know, it's it, the gate transition is a function of both incline and speed. Don't don't narrow in on just using one of them as the change. Yeah. So what I hear you say what I hear you saying is, you know, don't worry about just miles. Don't worry about just vertical feet. Worry about the rate of them, you know, worry about the combination of them. Um, because, you know, ultimately what we're targeting is within the time we have for training, um, you know, being specific with regards to the incline. Is that, do I have that right? Yeah, hundred percent. Yep. Cool. And then I guess another quick clarifying question at the beginning of what you just last said, you said, um, oh, I find three or four times is they need to walk three or four times as much. Is that referring to what they were naturally doing? So maybe naturally someone like Dylan Bowman's doing 10% 10% walking and training, but when he's training for hard rock, maybe you need him doing more like 30 or 40%. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay, cool. And, and I, I, I use that, I, I use that one to five X just to illustrate how big the discrepancy is for most athletes. And so for everybody there listening right now, like think about that. I'm doing X race and I'm going to, and let's just say the race is a 10 hour race. Cause I'm going to make the math easy for me, right? 10 hour race. And three out of those 10 hours, I'm going to be walking. If you're training 10 hours a week, three hours during that 10 hours of week training should be walking to match the race specificity. 
And most people, when they think about that, they're like, I don't walk at all. Or I might walk to the grocery store, you know, or something like, you know, that doesn't count as training at that point. But I guess my point is, is it's, it's most people grossly underestimate the percentage of hiking that they are either going to be doing during the race and or the percentage of hiking that they need to do in training. It's interesting what uh, t- talking through this has made me realize a training error that I've done myself with regards to running and walking. So, uh, so, so I've, I've kind of always agreed and understood that it's important to walk, you know, a proportion of, you know, a, ideally a um, similar proportion in training as you'll do in race day. So the way I've kind of done it in the past is, oh, I'm just going to perform. Um, I'm just going to spend a couple days hiking up super steep, um, you know, inclines in Boulder where I'm going to have to walk. And even though it's steeper than I'm going to be racing on, it's going to force me to walk and, you know, get that proportion walking, you know, this is perfect. Great. And I don't have to sacrifice, you know, any, uh, cardiovascular fitness because of maintaining a, a high output because I'm on steep train. But what I'm realizing right now is that because, you know, I, I'm hiking at a much steeper incline than I might in, let's say a 50 miler, and because that's maybe a large enough incline difference that the walking economy on the steep terrain that I'm training likely won't translate to the walking economy on the more gradual terrain that I'm going to have to walk in training. So what I'm now realizing is, oh, okay, <laughs> what I thought was great. Oh, I'm going to hike up Fern Canyon and that's going to help me when I have to hike, you know, during the quarter 50 miler. Probably not because those incline differences are probably more on the range of 10 degrees. So the walking economy won't correlate as well. So I probably should actually have been um, walking more gradual, um, more gradual terrain because those appear to be different skills. So, um, yeah, I, thanks. Thanks for uh, thanks for helping me train better. Well, <laughs> I, I was going to ask you, that's why that's why we were stumbling all over each other because I was going to ask you that very question. What are you going to do differently now that you know that? So you already, you already answered that. And I I will tell you as a coach, this is not something that I would do differently, but it's definitely something that I have realized I need to emphasize more with athletes is this one walking more two walking and running specifically on the grades and the terrain that they're going to be experiencing during the race, just emphasizing that more, that much more during the, during the training process, as much as the athlete can do, you know, I mean, some people, they just don't have access to, you know, different types of train, but I I've kind of viewed it. I think a lot of athletes get a little over prideful with having to run every single step, you're laughing because this is probably you as well, because they don't want their intensity. They think that that their intensity is going to go down and therefore the effectiveness of the workout goes down when they switch from a run to a walk. But A, they need, this is really important, by the way. I think all the coaches and athletes that are listening to this need to take this into consideration. The more effective, um, the, the more effective training activity or training run is going to be the one that is the most biomechanically specific in this versus the one that's the most, that's the most intense. So let's just say that you're doing a normal training run, right? And you need to walk more, right? Walking more at a lower intensity is a good trade-off versus running more at a higher intensity. And, and most people's psychology is reversed, right? They, because they're so intensity focused and they think that the higher intensity is going to elicit a superior adaptation. But the way that I look at it is it doesn't matter during an endurance run 
if you're at like 60% of your VO2 max or you slow down to a walk at, for in, in, in locomote at 50% of your VO2 max, the adaptation of the, between those two intensities is virtually identical. So since the cardiovascular adaptation between those, between those uh, intensities are virtually identical, I would rather take the advantage of getting the biomechanical specificity along the way. And plus then it's easier. So you can do more volume, you can recover faster and stuff like that. And I guarantee you there are a ton of athletes and coaches out there that don't really think about that. They think about going a little bit harder on the climbs in order to maintain a run. And they think that that is more effective because of the increase in intensity. And there might be, there might be cases where, yeah, if you're not doing any intensity, that might be the more effective workout. But as long as you have other organized intensity outside of that, slow down to a walk, you get the biomechanical specificity and the cardiovascular implications are almost identical between those two intensities. Right. Yeah. Maybe a succinct way to say it is you lose 1%, you know, in terms of, you know, a a cardiovascular stimulus for the sake of a 10 to 25% increase in, you know, specificity and, and, you know, the performance implications of that. Yep. Bingo. Yeah, nail on the head right there. All right, man, we're going to let you go. We already went through all the things that we wouldn't do and that we're going to do differently. Uh, links to everything will be on the show notes. Jackson, do you want people to reach out to you and heckle you on social media? You can give your handles now. Yeah, I'm fine with that. Um, I, I actively use Strava and Instagram, so um, happy to happy to um, see people over there. And what's your Instagram handle? Uh, my name, maybe there's a, maybe there's a dot in between the first month. I'm not sure. <laughs> All right. I'll link it up in the show notes, man. Thanks for coming on the uh, podcast today, man. And thanks for doing the research. Like I said, links to the show notes will, or there'll be links to, in the show notes to everything that we talked about, man. This is fun. Yeah, no, it's uh, doing, doing the research sometimes, you know, it, it can get a little lonely in there. So when I have a chance to kind of present, whether it's, you know, at a research conference or even just more informally on something like this, it's uh, kind of kind of makes it all worth it in a way. So, yeah, I appreciate you giving me this platform. All right, folks, there you have it. There you go. Much thanks to Jackson for coming on the podcast today. There will be links in the show notes to Jackson's presentation. I hope everybody goes and checks those out and geeks out a little bit further. And I also hope everybody takes to heart this extremely important concept that running and walking are fundamentally different and that we need to train for them as specific modalities when we're thinking about training for particularly mountainous trail and ultra marathon types of events. In fact, this is one of the areas that I have changed in my coaching the most since first working with ultra runners, and that is to emphasize walking and power hiking more throughout the training process than I did when I first started working with trail and ultra runners. Thank you to all the listeners that are out there. If you had feedback for this particular episode, you can hit me up on social media. I always appreciate those comments. You can share this podcast with your friends and training partners, and you can give it a rating on Apple Podcasts. That really helps the podcast out a lot. I appreciate the heck out of each and every one of the listeners out there. And as always, we will see you out on the trails.